Welcome to Audible Brutality. Two grouchy musicians humorously complaining about the state of music today. Featuring Adam Percy and Tim Vandevan. Take it away, Adam and Tim. Hey, hey Tim. Adam. Hey, How's Tim. It going, buddy. <laughs> hey, there you are. There you are over there. Remote podcasting, interrupting each other. <laughs> well, that's it, right? You know? Sorry, I have something terribly non-important to say. How about you? Yeah, yeah, about the same. <laughs> I got nothing, man. I got nothing. How are you? I'm well, I'm well, you know, uh, trying to keep safe during COVID-19, and I hope all of our listeners are bo- are also keeping safe. <laughs> Hi, Gareth. I hope you're keeping safe, buddy. <laughs> That's right. This show is dedicated to Gareth Carr because we love Gareth Carr. Yeah, I'm sure even write- Andrea's wife is like, oh, I, I got other things to do. <laughs> I, yeah, she's probably thinking, I, I hear enough of these two clowns. I, I don't need to hear this. But yep. Gareth, go write some songs. We got some stuff we got to do. Yeah. And then when Gareth brings us some songs and we finish them, we promise our other listeners that we will play them on this show. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Our other listener is probably Adam's mom, so it's a, but that's good though. You know, she loves him, so that's a good thing. Yeah, I don't know. I do, maybe some of the topics my mom may not want to listen in on. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Like road stories and stuff, which maybe we'll talk about later. Uh. Probably later. So Adam is going to be driving the bus again today, like we did last week, and he's going to be he's going to be the topic meister. So oh, topic well. meister, what you got for us this week, Adam Percy? Well, this week, you know, I I I was thinking there were two topics that we could cover today. Um, one of them, maybe talking a little bit about our experience in terms of placement and royalties. That oh, good m- call. Mystical sort of. It's like email. People, you know, look at email and they go, oh, what a simple form of communication. And yet it's one of the most complicated and frustrating things if you ever need to configure it or set it up. And I think royalties are kind of the same. People sort of go, oh, free money. And it's not. Well, it is to certain degrees, but uh, there's different kinds of royalties. There's different kinds of royalties that you can collect for certain things that you do. I think today, Tim, one of the things that we should talk about is sort of our experience in terms of royalties with that one commercial that we worked on a few years ago. That's a great idea. We can talk about the the Target commercial that Adam and I were part of yeah. back in, I want to say, 2007. That's about with, right. Uh, th- the one and the only Andrea Revel, a great singer-songwriter who now makes her home in Calgary. Yeah. And she had done commercials before. I know she had done an Old Navy commercial prior to this. Right. And I had been working with Andrea a little bit. I'd been playing with her for, I don't know, several months at the time, maybe a year. This is back and in then Montreal. She got the, in Montreal. Yeah, right, when yeah. she was back in Montreal. That's right. When she had the opportunity to write something for a, a Target commercial, which I thought was... It was an amazing opportunity, honestly. And Adam was here. Adam was at my place at the time. And I remember as his studio was set up and we were ready to rock and roll in our, in my basement at my old place in Montreal. And yeah, uh, I got, well, I got the opportunity. I lucked out on, on that one in that I got to essentially engineer the whole thing. 
it was sort of co-written with a few people who were who we were actually recording with at the time mm -hmm. in your True. basement. And actually, Andrea had been brought in, I think, to do was it backup vocals? I think she was doing backup vocals for that project. There was a, there yeah there was a song she came in for backup vocals and then she proposed something. She had proposed that she said, I have this opportunity. And for her, it was like she really wanted to work with, I know she wanted to work with you. She was already working with me. She wanted to get this commercial done. And there was a very short time. I think the, if I'm not mistaken, I could be mistaken. Andrea, please write in and correct me. I was pretty sure that the window of opportunity was pretty small, closing quickly. So it was kind of like, we got to do this today. Yeah. Or it doesn't happen kind of thing. So. I remember that we took a break for half a day on a Thursday and she presented the song and uh, you and myself and Rick, uh, who was in at the time, we all kind of sat down and we, um, she had this song riff and I think we banged it out in like an hour or something and got a bunch of takes in terms of mix. I think we had it finished that night. <laughs> And I think the funny thing was, is after we did what, what I had to do, what Rick had to do, what Andrea had to do, Rick and I had to run off and go do a show with Amanda that night, Amanda Mabra. We were playing with her at that time, too. Right. I think when we came back, you had a rough mix in place and song ideas were being sent off to the, the gentleman who was uh, going to pitch all this stuff for us. That's and, right. Uh, she had someone brokering the song, which I realize is not maybe something that all of our listeners have access to but there are obviously music supervisors and brokers out there who you know look for specific material to mm -hmm. place in things like commercials or television shows or any other sort of advertisement and yeah so she had this broker and I remember that actually she was sitting on mm -hmm. that pullout couch while I was mixing and we were sussing something out in terms of how it was going to sound and yeah so we we had something together and mm -hmm. In an afternoon, I think maybe within four or five hours, we had that little 20-second snippet. The song process started with Andrea had an idea. She came to my place that I had in Montreal at the time. You were there. Rick was there. I, I don't know if Amanda was there. Basically, the song was finished over pancakes and sausage, which, you know, <laughs> you can't go wrong, right? So pancake sausage and good old Quebec maple syrup. And then uh, I think we ran downstairs and started banging it out. Yeah. Because again, Rick and I were on a tight timeline where it's like, okay, got to get the drums, got to get the drums, got to get the drums are done. Okay, got to get this, got to get this, got to get this. Okay, done. Got to get this, got to get this done, got to get this. I think the last thing that I did was I overtracked a tambourine part and then it was like, we got to get out of here. Rick and I have to run away and go do a show. That's and it was right. like, jump into my car. It's like, Adam, Andrea, have fun. See oh, you, that's bye. right. You know. And yeah, I remember this now because I also had that really cool honer dual manual organ, which I think you still have actually. At your I place. still do. Um, I, it's 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 here in my studio my friend it's it's still locked and safe it's so cool i love that thing it's it's basically like the poor man's farfisa it's got that sort of you know reedy whistly high-pitched kind of you know surfer style kind of organ sound it's it's really dope oh yeah um I love you want it. you you want to start us you want to start a sonics cover band the the immediate the yes. minute you start playing this so yeah, yeah well it's even got those legs that are built into the into the case so you take the lid of the case off and then you take the legs out and you screw it into the bottom and it it's it's designed to be a piece of furniture and a musical instrument. So anyway, I digress. I got, I got to get that guy out. I got, you know, he's still with me, you know, again, just waiting for the day that you drive here, you yeah. know, and I'm going to chuck it in your, in your car, truck. Well, that's the back problem. of your bicycle, whatever, you know, I'd love to get it back, but that thing weighs a ton. <laughs> it's really, Oh, it's going to, 
it will come back to you one day. Someday. It's, it's, this I is, know this, it's this, this is just a long loan. That's all it is. It's it's not mine. It's but yours. But that's so. right. We banged it. So, yeah, we, we got all the, the, the guitar, the bass, the drums, the organ. The last thing you did was the tambourine, and you guys, I think, pretty much ran out the door. And me and Andrea Skedaddle. just sort of finished yeah. the mix. Uh, after sort of an extensive process of adjustment and tweaking, and actually you and I were talking about this last week, not yeah. on air, where after that session, I pretty much decided to move out west. <laughs> so mm. I remember <laughs> at the end of that week, I took you back to Toronto, and I think you were in Toronto for maybe two to three weeks, yeah. and then you were off to and then Vancouver. I, yeah, I flew out west, and actually I wound up shipping all of my studio stuff out. And at that time, I know there was a bit of panic because the 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 people representing Target were like, we love this mm -hmm. song, can you make some changes? And all my drives are being shipped out by UPS. Yeah, <laughs> so I didn't yeah, have anything. You, you have no studio set up, you have no place to mix, you have no place to yeah. edit, nothing. Yeah. So I had yeah. to run up, We were, I was living in Nanaimo actually at the time, and this is when we called up our mutual friend, John Greenberg, who is kind of like the third Beatle in this whole podcast. I don't know if you've noticed, but every episode we do, we mention John Greenberg. And he had a little studio up in Port Alberni, and uh, the first thing I got shipped out to me, of course, was the drives because it's in a tiny little box. So I have these drives. I'm like, boom, I take the bus straight up to Port Alberni. John and I sit down. We do like three different kinds of mixes, all sorts of alternate mixes. I think within the day it was finished. Yeah, that was really exciting because I, I got it all back to Andrea. And I think they pretty much signed off on it after that fairly quickly. But then, then there was this whole sort of thing. I remember us having this discussion about... Um, Money and royalties, right? Well, yeah, because, of course, like with any commercial endeavor, and, and I'm not going to talk specifically how much money was made directly. No, no, from, no that, that's, not, that's not the point of this. No, no the, but essentially the company that hired Andrea to write the song, of course, makes a big payout. We're paying you for your song and for your music, but then there's also other royalties on top of that that maybe mm -hmm. our listeners may or may not be aware of that you can also accrue from things like commercial licensing. The, fir the first thing you're talking about where Target scratched a check that uh, was split around the guy that placed the song to Andrea, to you, to me, to Rick. Right. That's, that's a synchronization fee. Right. Which is basically you've given this company the right to use this song in this commercial. Right. And then it's up to whomever to split whatever the way they want to do it after. And that. it clearly actually outlines where that company can use that song. Yes. So, uh, yeah, they can't use it. Uh, you know, they can't say like, oh, we're going to use it in like 14 different episodes of different uh, other TV shows or t different TV commercials. And we're not going to pay you for it because we've already bought for We've already bought it. That's it. We've already we've already bought it, so we we can't use you can't use it anymore. Yeah, it's it. specifically to be used for this use in a television commercial. We can't use it on radio. We mm -hmm. can't use if we want to use it. it on radio. We have to come to the artist and come to an agreement that says new agreement. Yeah, here's yeah. here's more money. We want this has been so successful. We want to use this song in a radio campaign. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so there, there was that whole thing. And that happened pretty quickly. That got all dished out fairly fast. That, and that, that was, was the up, that was the upfront dineros. Yeah, so. upfront dineros. But then there was this this whole thing where uh, the songwriting royalties, the songwriting. Exactly. Yeah. And there were no mechanicals with this, but there was songwriting yeah, with this. So. Right. Maybe you could clarify that a bit, because even sometimes as obviously 
I forget which is which. <laughs> well, the, the songwriting, what we ended up submitting to SoCan was that Andrea had pretty much finished the song and needed some, there were a couple of vocal ideas, a couple of lyrical ideas that I had proposed that got used. So she gave me a percentage of that because I had proposed certain right. um, turns of turns of phrase within the song. Right. And that was, that was, you know, and according to SoCan's definition, which you don't always have to go by, but she wanted to go by the SoCan definition, which is perfectly fine. I had no issues with it. And she d- decided that the percentage of the vocal ideas that I had pitched that are being used were a certain percentage. And that falls under this much percentage because SoCan splits the song into two fifties. So basically you've got 50% is the music, which Andrea completely wrote all the music and then the idea of the vocal idea, and she actually was a little bit more generous than than what she needed to be. So she gave me a little bit of a bump in the songwriting after that. So that was nice. So so the, the co-write with her turns out to be a co-write. Um, the majority of it is hers. A small percentage becomes mine, which is cool. And then off the song goes, and then it rolls around on American television for eight months or whatever it was, or three months or two months or six months. I can't remember but it was a back to school campaign and then it ends up on YouTube and I've got, you know, there's, there's a link to the the YouTube video, which we'll probably put up on our website. Yes, we will. Because of course it's Adam and I doing this. It's all, it's Adam's genius with, uh, you know, me sort of showing up and doing my thing. He said modestly, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's, again, it's, it's, it's a great idea from Andrea and it sounds great and she sounds great in it. And Rick was a big part of it too, doing a lot of the, a lot of the instrumentation in it where he did a lot of, he did the, the, the guitar work, the bass work. He did, he overtracked, I think some. He handled the arrangement and production. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So like, so at the end of the day, you know, it turned out to be a nice little chunk of pocket change for a bunch of us. And it was, it was a fun time to go to the point about how things should work is I think what would have made things a bit better for us might've been sort of agreements up front, you know, less negotiation after the song happens because, yeah. you know, for instance, when you're in a band, you know, so the guitar player comes to you and he's got this song and it sounds pretty cool. And then there's some tweaks and changes that are made by the bass player and the drummer and the singer. And it's sort of now, now it sounds like that band, the time to negotiate as to writing credits and post production royalties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera are not when you're putting ink to a contract for something, you know, because, because then (laughs) all of a sudden everybody is imagining that, well, well, hang on a second here, man, this, this song, wait, I brought this song. Yeah. You guys made it better, but, uh, no, I don't want to share it with you. And this becomes part of the problem. I know that for instance, Adam and I, whatever we do, regardless of what the song is or We've always just said right down the middle, who cares? High tide floats all boats with our stuff. Yeah. And that's what Adam and I have always tried to do because what you do is you take the money out of the equation and you can get back to what you're supposed to do, which is the art. T- Tim and I are socialists in that way. <laughs> we're yes, socialist we're... assholes splitting everything evenly, distributing the wealth. <laughs> the thing is, is that at the end of the day, something that is frustrating for band members is that if you're in a band where somebody has all of the ideas, but then purports that it's a democracy, then you should split everything equally. If you're in a band where somebody is sort of the principal lead and brings in all of the ideas and brings in the production ideas and they're the one that's driving the bus, that sort of stuff, well, yeah. then 
maybe you should look at it in a different fashion and think about, well, okay, so they're going to make their first million before I make my first thousand. Well, is that how, is that something you want to do? Yeah. Like it's kind of like what we were talking about last week where, where band dynamics in general, it's, it's a sensitive spot. It can be a tough topic, Mm -hmm. but in my experience, and I think with yours as well, it's one of those topics that really is like a bandaid. It's better to just mm. rip that fucker right off. Don't try mm. and slow peel it and sort of worry about, you know, when you get halfway through sort of going, um, can we talk royalties? Be upfront. Yeah. Just be like, look, I think we've all kind of contributed this, 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 and this. Try to be democratic about it. Acknowledge other people's contributions mm-hmm. and say, look, I think this is fair. I think this is a fair distribution of everyone's contribution. Are we in agreement? And if so... You can move on, but just get it out of the way. Just get that nicely out of the way. I agree. And written on a, even on a back of a fucking napkin or something and hold on to that. Just get it done. It, it, there's no sense in battling over it afterwards because you're going to probably wind up pretty disappointed. <laughs> well, I think a good example of that was our, I know that you had a go around with acid test in the nineties. And then we had, then I joined with you in the, I want to say 2013, 2014, 2015, somewhere around there, acid test redux. And when we were talking about the record and the album and stuff, I know that the big conversation that we brought up was, okay, so Adam's got a song and and Steve's got a song and Lucy's got a song and what's going to go on here? How does this work? And I remember that I had said, well, listen, are we a band? Is this a band or is this the project of a specific person or duo? Right. And immediately it was like, no, 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 we're a band, we're a band, we're a band. And I said, then in that case, these imaginary dollars, because we haven't even recorded song one yet. <laughs> right. So these dollars don't exist. These imaginary dollars should be split four ways. End of story. That's it. Yeah. I remember you said, yeah, absolutely. 100%. And uh, the other two as well, Lucy and Steve, both to their credit, they both said, yeah, absolutely. If we're a band. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, No, share the wealth. High tide floats all boats. That's it. That's all. Well, In the first iteration of that band way back in the nineties, in my youth, when I came on the scene in that band and when Mike who's no longer with us, the DJ back in the Say, 90s. Mike, Har- Mike Harlan. Mike Let's Harlan. talk about Mike. Uh, when we both sort of, we came to the party late. Steve and Lucy had already written a bunch of tunes themselves. So the relationship was a little bit different. And I think, and, and it was sort of in a time too where, you know, I think there were maybe sort of more opportunities for everyone to get some sort of compensation outside of just royalties. Yeah. And I think we all kind of did our best to sort of make that as fair as possible. And I sort of give credit to that. I think, you know, we were given royalties on certain things, but there was a lot of time spent on, oh, well, you know, you did this and this took you half an hour, whereas this took me an hour and a half. And it was this sort Mm -hmm. of trying to make royalties a wage based on really narrow guidelines as to what you're contributing Mm -hmm. that... I think maybe I wasn't particularly resentful of that. I'm I'm still not. I actually I still get royalties from early acid test stuff and I'm actually very grateful for that. But I I mm-hmm. think having sort of like gone down that road later with like you and with you know with played in with friends and with other bands where I have contributed writing it just was easier. It's so much easier to just sort of say, well, there's four members, 25%. Bang. Even if they're not necessarily contributing writing 
if you are a band, you are contributing something, you know, like we've talked loads of times about the amount of driving that you did for bands. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that driving necessarily equates songwriting, but without Tim being there to do certain things that other people can't, it's this idea that royalties are, are about keeping everyone on an even contribution basis songwriting or otherwise, I think is a good one, even though it's, it's supposed to be earmarked for songwriting. I just, I don't want to fucking argue over how many words so-and-so wrote in the lyrics and therefore he only gets 12.25 fucking percent. I just, (laughs) ah, fuck. Like just, no, I don't care. I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that, Adam, because this goes back to my days. Uh, well, I mean, I got co-writes going back to the eighties with bands I was in, but one of the the big the big factors for me was working with my buddy Paul, and I remember yeah. thinking that you know do we want to be start splitting hairs about songs and who wrote this and you know did did Paul okay so Paul put that harmony in that spot there but that that harmony doesn't exist without my song so I'm great and I need a hundred percent of it yeah you know the way I look at it is like well without Paul does that song actually fucking happen in the way that it's happening right now no it doesn't you know. And that's the the approach that I've used when when co-writing with you is that you, so I send you here's an idea Adam here's a really stupid rough idea I have this chord pattern here you go what do you think and you're like hold on that makes me think of this and you send me something back I'm like whoa hang on yeah you didn't change my chords you changed the sounds and you changed the you know and you might have said I'll well, do this as the verse and this is the chorus flip those two things around and all of a sudden it's like well hang on now the song is starting to take life. Yeah, what? So it's still my song? Not really, you know? We did that with Avro, 1976. Like, that actually was your chord progression that I, like you said, I think I, I meat grinded it pretty badly, but in a good way. that wound up on my album Mm -hmm. uh, for which I am eternally thankful but you know I was so happy with that song and oddly enough it was that song that sort of moved me ahead with that project so I couldn't possibly fathom not it's our song yeah it's our song it's not it wasn't mine if it was mine I wouldn't have sent it to you do you know what I mean like collaboration is the best thing I love collaboration there's another song we did together you and I where I sent you what was this dirgy sort of you called it a Depeche Mode song and you heard it and you're like, dude, those chord changes, 
that's Motown, man. And you wrote a Motown <laughs> song out of it, you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> and vice versa. You've sent me loads of stuff where you're like, okay, this is where I am with this. What have you got? And I send you some stuff back and you're like, oh my God. Like, okay, yeah. So we're like, it's collaboration. And I don't, I don't want to be splitting hairs like, well, Adam, you actually did... Uh, 13.6% of the keyboards and 2.9% uh, of the electronic percussion. So, uh, okay, let's just round that to 17 and fuck you. You know, it's like, too I, much math. And you know what? You, you brought up, you brought up the point of like, you know, what we did with acid test, which is like, are we a band or am I a session player? If I'm a session player, Scratch, Scratch me a check. check. Scratch me a check right now. Yeah. Right now. That's what these organizations like SoCan and ASCAP mm -hmm. are there for. They're, they're there to make sure that in times of COVID, you have something coming in. Or do you know what I mean? Well, like, well, was, wasn't that a, wasn't that a Paul McCartney song? In, in times, these of, times of COVID, <laughs> Mother Mary infects me. No, that's not how that goes at all. So yeah, can writes me checks for a dollar. Both of the Beatles fans <laughs> that are listening to this co this podcast right now just both hit stop. So yeah, and and I'm sure Paul McCartney's lawyers are fucking yeah. already writing something up to I us. have no money please don't sue me yeah we're so, broke uh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's why we're grouchy by the way it's why we're grouchy we're, well yeah I don't know <laughs> I think what we got to what people have to do is they have to get a lot of stuff up front organized and done like this is how it's gonna be this is what we're gonna do yeah don't don't wait until the record comes out and then go like hey why is my name not on anything hey wait a minute why are you guys driving Ferraris and I'm still driving this you know 99 Tercel, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> or why are you guys driving Tercels and I'm, I'm taking the bus? <laughs> well, you, or, yeah. Oh, that's a little more realistic. Why does everyone have a bicycle and I don't, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, but uh, on that note, why don't we move on to our section? We like to call oblique strategies. Oblique Strategies. 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 Insert Oblique Strategies promo here. <laughs> what does Brian have for us today? What does Mr. Eno have to say in terms of Oblique Mr. Strategies? E Mr. Eno today? and Mr. Schmidt, what do they have for us today? Let's look. Interesting. Work at a different speed. <laughs> Is is the is he talking about our resolution recording issues that we had a couple of weeks ago? <laughs> he might be. He might just be. He might just be. So for all of you out there, whenever you record in forty four point one, don't mix it in forty eight. Or run it through your sound card in forty eight. Anyway, so whatever. Oh uh, yeah, you know what? To be fair, we've all been around the block on that one, and uh, oh yeah, yeah, that's a good time. All of a sudden, you hear you recording, and it's either like, "So Adam, how are things going today?" or it's good. So Adam, how are things today? It's you're like, either oh, yeah, a chipmunk yeah, yeah. or you're really stoned. Uh, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, let's just all of our home recordists out there, please make sure your sound card is recording. At and exporting at the same sample rate as yeah. your DAW. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yes, very important. Which brings us to our second card from Oblique Strategies. Bring it to us, Brian. Bring it. Are you ready for this one? Ready. You get to answer this question, Adam, okay? Oh, shit. Okay. What would your closest friend do? What would my closest friend do? Do it's a studio dilemma. 
something's not working. Well, if it was, what would my closest friend do in the studio? They would probably play some drum tracks for me. Probably. Right, Tim, my closest friend. I would probably do that. Would you, would you play some drums for me? I would just not right now, you know, but (laughs) yeah, I would. (laughs) Hey, Mr. Timothy, man, play some drums for me. Wow, we're breaking all the copyright rules on this one. We've done, holy shit. Please please don't sue us, Bob Dylan. Yeah, Beatles, Beatles and Bob Dylan. All wow. of the sacred cows going down. Fuck. And we talked about Kiss. Oh, my God. We're we always end up talking about Kiss. That's my problem because when I was a kid. We're in so much trouble. Fuck. Thanks, Brian Eno. When I was a kid, Kiss was a big thing in my life. And it was, my, you know, them and ABBA were my two first, like, sort of big rock bands because I was a very classically oriented guy. I was, uh, I wanted to be Schroeder as a child. So from the Peanuts and play nothing but Beethoven, you know? And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I'm, you know what? I, this is doing? always something I've appreciated about you, Tim, is that you go, I listened to Kiss, ABBA, and Led Zeppelin as a kid. Such a like such a broad rock palette, <laughs> like on like I love that. I think it's great. You know, like I, when I was in high school, I remember that music was such a cliquey thing. Like if I had come out to my classroom that I listened to Kiss, I would get noogies from most of the guys in the class. And then if I said, "But I also love ABBA," they would then probably give me a wedgie. So it's like <laughs> music really defined you socially. So I commend you, my brother, because I love all those bands myself as well. But um, sometimes I still have problems kind of coming out of the closet <laughs> in that regards, because I still sometimes think you, if you dress this way, you must like this kind of music exclusively. And that just isn't the way it is anymore. <laughs> You know, like you can like hip hop and you can like kiss and you can be fearless about that now. And I might have been a bit fortunate in, you know, just the way things went. The first few years of high school were not super cool. But I think that for me, what ended up happening was by the time I was 16, there were my friends that were hardcore Rush fans. And I was at that point like a big Zeppelin dude. And it was sort of like there were two camps and there were a few guys that would cross over and be like, oh, well, I like them. And then every now and then you'd have one guy go, yeah, I think the Scorpions are cool. And you're like, oh, he's a metalhead, man. <laughs> you know, and it was funny because there were there were the clicks. There were those clicks. It wasn't nearly as pronounced, but, you know, and then there'd be the guys like Judas Priest. And those are the guys in the smoking section. Oh, no, look out for musically for me. It was always that I just liked what I liked. And I remember at one point actually telling somebody that I that I really, really liked Big Country's first record, The Crossing. And I was like, that is such a great recording. And, you know, all the new wave kids were like, What? You like new wave? I'm like, no, 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 that's not new wave. They're like, no, it's totally new wave. I'm like, no, 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 it's not new wave. They're like, no, 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 it's it's not, it's new wave. It's new wave. Oh, you like new wave, you know? And what is what? You know, it's new wave because they are the new wave of British musicians selling stuff over in in North America. Yeah, but they're not synthy like uh, New Order. 
They're not synthy like Depeche Mode at the time. You know, they weren't they weren't that. You no. know, so to me it was like, well, this doesn't this can't possibly be new wave because there's guitars in it. Yeah. You know, and then I just realized I started liking what I liked, and then I stopped making apologies for it after a while. I was like, whatever. So, you know, if I put a rec- ABBA record on when you're over at my house, you're free to leave. Well, I was definitely, <laughs> you know? I was almost certainly what you would call someone who walked in the alternative crowd. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to a lot of electronic bands, uh, minimalist industrial music, Maybe Manifesto, Skinny Puppy. Nine Inch Nails' first album blew my fucking head off. Like, it, But I also liked a lot of sort of what I guess you would call synthesizer new wave stuff, you know, early Depeche mm. Mode. And I remember sort of being just, I don't know, maybe I was just very self-conscious about it. But like, I do know that that I often felt kind of threatened to reveal any of that, that only mm-hmm. like my closest friends who also listened to all of this stuff were really into it. I did a student exchange I had this really fucked up idea in high school that I should at least learn one language because I was terrible in French. I was failing French. So, hey, why don't I try German and see if that works, which I was also terrible at. But my teacher was a cool dude, and he actually set me up with a student exchange one summer. And uh, yeah, and so this German kid came over and stayed with us in Canada for a couple of weeks. And then I went over to Germany for a couple of weeks. And basically the guy who came to stay with me was this guy named Axel. And Axel was very, very much into Metallica and Guns N' Roses and anything that was kind of complete opposite to... (laughs) What I considered to like that was it was very outside of my clique, but oddly enough, like we actually got along really, really well. And he was actually a guitar player and I was kind of into keys and music. And so we had enough threads in common that we Mm -hmm. got along pretty good and we hung out a lot. And when we went to Germany, you could be younger and drink then openly. And it was like, oh, yeah, here we go. Party, party, party. And um, I remember being in his room when I went over. And I was looking through his records because he's like, hey, man, if you want to listen to anything, go right ahead. And I'm like, well, there's nothing here I could possibly want to listen to if you like Metallica. And he's like, and I'm going through his records and it's like, yeah, there's Metallica. Uh, Appetite for Destruction. Uh, The Smiths Erasure. What? (laughs) You know, and I start flipping back and I'm like, dude, you you have Erasure in here. Really? Like Erasure? This is Vince Clark, dude, like Andy Bell, like this is cheesy Europop, which I loved at the time. And he's like, well, yeah. And I'm like, why? He's like, well, they're good. <laughs> I was just sort there of like, go. well, OK, like, you know, I don't want to be one of those guys who are like Europeans are so much more open minded than we are. <laughs> it's not necessarily the case, but definitely it was a bit of an eye opener for me in terms of like that music didn't have to be cliquey and didn't have to be, you can like skinny puppy and you can like Katy Perry at the same time. And it is, I think much more democratic in that sense that you don't have to worry about being penalized for loving kiss and loving ABBA or loving Metallica and loving erasure. Like those two can be, can work together. So I think that some of it might have come from the way that radio stations may have worked in our youth, too, because I remember there were two distinct camps. Well, three. I'm going to say three camps. And we're going to talk just about the FM dial in the Toronto area for a while. Right. 
which is back in the day, there was the Chum FM guys, which was, there was a mix of hits and some, you know, rock on there. Then there was the Q107 guys, which was mainly the the classic rock Zeppelins, the 70s rock, the 60s rock kind of thing. And every now and then, like some heavy 80s rock. And then there was the CFNY guys, which were the weirdos that was like, you know, one minute, like you said, they're playing Erasure. And then they follow that with Aerosmith back in the early days of CFNY yeah. I'm talking about. The, the CFNY that Neil Peart actually wrote about in the Rush song, Spirit of Radio. Yes. So where they were just like the DJs would come on and be like, well, these are the like, okay, so it's my show today. I'm playing these, the, these songs. Cause I like these. And I mean, I remember back when CFNY started morphing more towards what some people might call new wave, but it's, it started to go into what was then called alternative in the eighties. And they would still mix in a Cindy Lauper tune every now and then. Like it'd be like, and it wouldn't be girls just want to have fun. Cause that was the big hit. They would be like, you'd be listening and they'd be playing like an REM deep cut. And you'd be like, Oh man, I love that tune from that record of R.E.M. I love listening to Driver 8, for instance, or an even deeper cut where it'd be like, oh, my God, Wendell G., I can't believe they played that on the radio. Then, boom, all of a sudden they're playing I Drove All Night by Cindy Lauper. You know, so, I mean, I remember back towards the late 80s, before the 90s came around, that, for instance, there were camps. It was like, oh, yeah, it's the ACDC, Led Zeppelin, Bob Seger, Bad Company, Eagles kind of group that was on the, the Q107 guys. And then it's like, you're listening to CFNY and they're like, why are you listening to that? Yeah. It was very West Side Story in a way. It was almost like you were in different games. It was. was Fucked up, man. It was. And I think, I think one of the reasons why I was able to sort of flip between all of those different gangs back in high school was because I played drums in high school. Right. It was something that was considered cool. You know, I don't know if drum playing drums in high school is considered cool anymore, but four million years ago when dinosaurs roamed the earth and I was <laughs> learning to play drums, uh, it was if you were if you could hold down and then play in the junior high school band, you know, your friends would be like, whoa, he's playing in the band, man. Oh, wow. He's actually good. Oh, my God. You know, and you're like up there sweating bullets and panicking and trying not to poop your pants because you're playing in front of 500 people and you're like, I'm not ready for this, you know? <laughs> so you're staring at your mu- your sheet music, pretending that you're reading it because you're just like ready to take a liquid poop anytime now because <laughs> it's like, don't look at me, don't look at me, don't look at me. I'm terrified, you know? <laughs> I think, and then I got, I started doing music with John, who we've referred to earlier, because John and I went to high school together for a bit. And it didn't give me a cool factor, but it gave me a pass that I could have. Again, like you could flip through my record collection and go, ooh, Led Zeppelin, uh, Led Zeppelin 3, cool, In Through the Outdoor, cool. Wait, Vuli Vu by ABBA? Okay, that's all right. So we're going to move on. Okay, cool. Oh, you got Bad Company here. You got Bad Company Straight Shooter. Cool, cool. Kiss Destroyer, what's wrong with you? I could get away with it. For me, I've always just liked what I liked. And I've always found I started liking stuff that I should have liked a lot earlier way too late. Yes. There's a bit of regret there for sure that I... Oh, completely. Uh, It's like I totally missed the boat on the Beastie Boys. They came out. I was like, oh my God, they're terrible. I hate them. And then years later, you know, listening to them, I'm like... Okay, I get it now. Wow, why did it take me so long? The in sounds you know? from way out, and they have guys like Mario Caldato, and and they would have like, uh, yeah, like Marcus Sheeta. That was my Beastie. That that was my Beastie Boys gateway record. Was that first, and going, holy cow, these guys are, these guys can play. Yeah. And then going back through the catalog and going, okay, well, I, you know, I didn't get it at the time because it was like a joke that somebody told me and it went over my head. But it's like, you know, go back and listen to like, kick it, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, yeah. It's interesting because, you know, in in their book, which I cannot recommend enough, the book that they came out with recently, 
they actually pretty much describe it the way that you just did is like, you know, we, they were all like, we were just a bunch of new wave kids and into like punk rock and stuff like the Cro-Mags and, but then, you know, we'd like, we loved the clash, but then we loved like dub and reggae, Lee scratch Perry. And then hip hop happened and we met, we knew run DMC, you know, Mm -hmm. we wanted to be those guys. And yet somehow we got over our head with being like this almost joke rap band Mm. but we loved all this stuff and we really actually were it's funny to hear them talk about it now and you know hindsight is always 2020 but it's very interesting to sort of read how they really wanted to pull back and go back to what they originally had planned to do and what they envisioned themselves doing as opposed to just you know this almost comic hip-hop band with an inflatable pneumatic penis on stage and like (laughs) all the things that they got in shit for on their first their first single and Mm -hmm. then their first album they they really worked very hard to sort of go well no actually like we actually just love all kinds of music and listening to their later catalog you can really hear that that they sort of Mm -hmm. really are expanding themselves musically and the in sound from way out still is like you know, it's and dope. I know they put it's a great. they put a lot of those songs interspersed on other or other albums like Ill Communication and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But so so awesome and so out there and just so well done. And yeah, and they got guys exactly. like Money Mark playing keyboards for them. And you made me think of something. And it's when you talked about them being big punk rock fans. So I remember when. I was working with John, as we'd mentioned before, John Greenberg. So John wanted to put together a garage punk band in 87. And I remember my friends who had known me for years being horrified (laughs) that I had Ramones records. They're like, my God, you fucking like this? I'm like, yeah, this is great. The first Ramones record. This is like, tell me you don't want to like, just like run around the room. There's so much energy on this record. Like, give me a break, you know? Yeah. And uh, some other records that I had picked up at the time too, like the Lipstick Killers. And there was some, I want to, I don't want to say backlash because those guys actually said, well, you know, we're not really into that stuff, but we're still going to come over to John's place and drink while you do, while you guys rehearse, right. you know, and they'd come over and we'd be having a time and they'd be having a time. And eventually all of a sudden it's like, you know, they're not so, they're not so down on the Ramones all of a sudden, you know? Yeah. And I think a lot of it, I think a lot of it boils back to stigma. Like, so you're going to tell me that the Ramones are not good at what they do. No, they were fantastic. I mean, I'm lucky enough to have seen them three times in the late eighties playing live. And it was just like these ridiculously fast, intense, huge shows. And just at the end of it, you're just like, wow, what just happened? (laughs) And these are great shows. And this is a great band, but again, it's like sort of that whole concept of like, so the beastie boys are this, the stew of, like you said, punk rock and classic rock and hip hop and dub. If you don't like something because you just listen to it and you're like, Oh, okay. But if, but if you're like, Oh, I hate that. Cause it's the beastie boys, but it's like, yeah, but I see you tapping your toe, man. Like you're, you're kind of digging this on a subliminal level. You're just trying not to like it. Yeah. I remember as a kid thinking, oh, I don't like that song because there's an electronic drum machine in it. But uh, of course, Pyromania by Def Leppard was dope. Well, hang on. That's all Lindrum. Yeah. That's <laughs> Mutt Lang programmed all those. So before you start telling me that a drum machine is going to be the difference between liking an album or not, well, well, just because there's guitars on it and not synthesizers doesn't mean. It's interesting so, that, you know, like even like from what I understand of like even Mutt Lang's production, 
a lot of times was almost akin to doing what we do today with DAWs, you know, literally yep. take micro examining almost every single note and all of the harmonics and recording those individually and getting them precisely right, like a, like a machine, and then making that into a song. Like, I've never worked with Mutt Lang. I don't know him personally. I He's obviously made a ton of fucking records that are, you know, million-selling albums, and... I so, you some know, of them fifteen million selling. You know, it's that's, crazy. How, yeah, how that's well his he's production done. style. I mean, you know, but yeah. interesting in that something that in a lot of ways is almost machine programmed is bands like Def Leppard, who are part of the you know the classic rock echelon. The Cars, the yeah. last Cars record too. Drive that that's programmed drums too. Some of the, the Shania Twain stuff, I think, yeah. he was programming still too. It's funny. I think the drummer that actually sort of moved me towards the idea of being cool with drum machines was Phil Collins. Yeah. And that was actually on the Robert Plant solo records because there would always be one or two tunes on there where he would program his, his 808. I think he had an 808. He was big on the And he would program yeah. it. You know, so like big log. So now Robert Plant's going to sue us because I did a bad job at big log. But uh, please don't, please don't. Um, so it was kind of one of those things where I was in a dilemma in my own stupid little head where it was kind of, I'm not supposed to like this cause they're programmed and it's taking the job away from the drummer, but yet it's the drummer that programmed the drum machine. What do I do? Yeah. And then I realized, well, I just really like this song. Was it the musicians union in the UK in the eighties tried to oh, like the sixties was it in the sixties with, with, with the Mellotron. Well, they, I think they tried to do the same thing in the 80s with Lindrum because something like six out of the top 10 hits in the 80s were mm. drum machine programmed. And they were like, mm -hmm. this is taking work away from drummers. You can't do that. I, I forget exactly what action they tried. I think they were trying to boycott albums solely because they were using drum Quite machines. Possibly. And but I mean, a, a lot of the times too, though, what was the dirty little secret that no one ever talked about was a lot of times a band would go into record and the drummer would get replaced. Right. <laughs> so the producer would say, the, the producer would go in and go like, yeah, I know he's your guy, but he's not really that good or he's not doing what I want. So out he goes. Yeah. And then replacement. Sure. Okay. So the musicians union is happy because another drummer comes in and gets a bunch of scale or points on the record or whatever it was. But the original drummer's standing around with his dick in his hand going, fuck, <laughs> this is my band. And I'm watching another guy. It's, you know, it's like watching another guy have sex with your wife. Yeah. He's standing outside the door of the studio crying into a cigarette. Yeah. Exactly. Or, or they've, the, the, the producer in the case, like it's happened with Mutt Lang where he would be like, well, no, the drummer's out and I'm going to program the drums and the drummer, drummer records cymbals afterwards. So the, right. because you know, program cymbals in the eighties were like, they didn't sound very good. A so very popular technique actually at the time was, yeah, to lay down the kick and yeah. the snare, but then have the drummer come in and lay down hi hats and cymbals over top to give it a live feel. Exactly. So, but I mean, like, again, it's, it, this is all about, we're sort of dancing about architecture. It's like, would that great hit from that band that you love, would it have benefited from different, different gear? I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. 
And in the day of studio time was money. And instead of spending three days trying to make, get the rattle out of that 13th Tom you've got hanging up, they can just go, <laughs> let's just bust out the 808 and go and program the drum parts, record that, and then put everything in afterwards. Well, Hey man, we just saved you 10,000 bucks on this recording. Yes. And you know, well also too, at the time it was like, well, this is the modern way of doing it. This is what everyone wants to hear right now. So, you know, well, that's just it too, is that, you know, nobody ever sort of talks about the influence of audience and medium. Actually a good example of that is a mutually favorite band of ours, uh, joy division, Martin mm-hmm. Hennett, totally genius producer and, totally fucked up producer all at the same time but you know some of the things he was doing in production really were kind of pretty out there especially with drums you know he was often incorporating both drum machine and drummers at the same time but doing it in different ways and electronic percussion too because i know that they were using Synair a bunch too that's right which you have which we have to get Uh on a track very soon he actually had Sinairs, the ones that look like little spaceships, and then also the sensor, which I also have, which clips to a tom or a snare. Yes. And has uh, two foot switch ins and outs on it where you can actually turn it off and on so that, you know, it's not constantly going or whatever, you know, <laughs> throughout the entire song. So you can turn it off and on for certain spots. Yeah, I ended up picking this thing up for like a song. That's <laughs> songbird. Cool. We yeah. have to try that on a track, my friend. Oh, that's that's going to be on the next next recording, probably. Yes, sir. Well, geez, I think our time here is almost at an end, Tim. I think so. We were going to talk about touring, but we can save touring for next Let's week. Let's save touring for next week because we got into, I think, a pretty interesting discussion on other things. Bring out your dead songs. We want to hear your dirty little secrets. Send them to Bring us. us your dirty. Um, keep it coming. Your dirty. We love to hear everything that you have. We're going to dedicate an episode to a bunch of these songs coming up soon. So I think please, so. Please, please, please. Bring us, bring us your, your silly little songs and your not so silly little songs. Send us everything, man. And we'll play them before we get shut down by the Beatles and Kiss and anyone else that we've offended in terms of copyright, Bob Dylan, whatever. <laughs> We are terrible, terrible, terrible human beings. But that's okay. I can live with that. You take care, Adam. You have yourself a fantastic day, and we will do this again soon. Tim is signing out. Adam is signing out. Tim, I'll see you next week, buddy. You know you will. Take care. Audible Brutality is presented by Adam Percy and Tim Vandeven and recorded remotely on Denman Island, British Columbia, and in St. Jerome, Quebec. Music submissions or general inquiries can be made through our website at audiblebrutality.com. Give us a like on Facebook or Instagram. And of course, if you haven't yet, subscribe to the Audible Brutality podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Thanks for listening.